This is Geeks and Jacks. And welcome back to Geeks and Jacks episode 143. Recording February 23rd, 2023. This is Ryan Sullivan. here. Before heading into this episode, this podcast is on anchor.fm. Also find us on Spotify, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. So I don't download those places. Search for Geeks and Jocks. Plenty of content awaits. So what are we talking about today? Talking about a tiny bit more Hogwarts Legacy. Actually talk about Madden. As far as gaming goes, talk about the state of Marvel a tiny bit with Ant-Man leading the way this past weekend what entails for this upcoming weekend for films, and a few sports-related stuff, including the Daytona 500, Hall of Fame for NFL, and one or two other things for this episode of Geeks and Jacks. So, let's jump to the movies to begin this episode. Number one was obviously going to be Ant-Man and the Wasp. Quantum Mania. Ant Man's never exactly been a big success in comparison to other Marvel related projects. I think the last one that came out was five years ago and it made over six hundred million and that's it. And obviously it was rolling last week at number one. Making just over, according to Box Office Mojo, $106 million. The rest are just single millions. I'll explain that in a tiny bit. So, Ant-Man and the Wasp, $106 million. As it stands right now, the numbers have not been updated for yesterday. $127 million domestic, $129, almost $130 internationally and so far it has made 257 million now as far as that goes it already passed its budget but it probably needs to make a lot more for this to be considered any form of success and my estimation is probably needs to make anything north of 700 million to be what I would think would be a hit because this movie is a 200 million dollar budget I believe it had a big ad in the Super Bowl and obviously heavy advertising so you're looking at maybe anywhere from 60 to 80 million maybe 90 million you need this to be doing bigger than than Ant-Man 2 need it to be huge and the critics have not exactly been kind to Quantum Mania. Hasn't exactly. If I had to put a fact into it, I mean, Ant Man's like a mid tiered character, and he's given the A list treatment. I mean, I mean, the treatment they get is like a variety of actors in it. I mean, Paul Rudd, Catherine Newton, Evangeline Lilly, Jonathan Majors, who else? Bill Murray, Michael Douglas, well, Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, that's 
that's not a bad cast, all things considered. I'm trying to think of, like, is it fully CGI or something? Or is it just the stories just don't interest people? You think with just multiple generations of fans of these actors, you'd think some would join in and would have made the movie bigger. Now, granted, $106 million almost doubled what the first movie did its opening weekend back in 2015. But with potential fatigue, this could be the thing that starts getting people to say, I'm tuning out of Marvel. Now, I don't think Marvel is going to be failing dramatically. Uh, you got that Guardians of the Galaxy 3 coming out in the spring around early May. I would imagine that would be the most successful of the films that the studio is putting out this year. A lot of people love it. it but it's it's in that same thing as Ant-Man. Kind of obscure. But maybe the way they do the story, the characters, the humor, everything about it, if I had to guess. It, it makes people love Guardians much more than, than Ant-Man. And maybe what doesn't help is that over the course of the last couple of years, Disney shoving out all these TV shows on Disney Plus and forcing you to watch those to understand certain things before going to see to the, the movies in the theater. And I think that's just really bad. I mean... They're out to make money. Every studio is out to make money, but it's overdone, I think, with Disney. All that aside, I'll talk about Disney a little bit more with another movie that put out its budget a little over a week ago. Maybe almost two weeks ago. So number two, Avatar, The Way of Water, making $6.5 million, inching its way if it hasn't already, to 660 domestically here in the States. Come on. So any little bit helps, I guess. I got a couple other movies. Number four is interesting because it's still doing rather amazingly, all things considered. Uh, so... Avatar 2 sitting at almost 660 million and 1.588 billion almost 2.25 billion worldwide still clicking along after 2 months in theaters 10th week in, in theaters number 3 Magic Mike's Last Dance 5.4 million as it stands, both at 19 plus million, 19.4 domestic, 19.6 internationally. So just made over 39 mil. Yeah. Don't think anyone wanted to see this. Not sure it'll be considered a hit, 
but probably not a flop either. Number four, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Still doing really well. with The Avatar drop, uh, 6.5, was a 9.2 drop. Puss in Boots is with 5.3 was a 4.3% drop. And I find that to be pretty good as it stands right now nearing 170 domestic and almost 257 mil internationally. So no doubt DreamWorks and Universal have got to be really happy. I'm sure Universal is gearing for some more fun and profit with some of their animated flicks. If anyone gets a chance, listen to one of the new uh, Mario trailers where they do like a cheap home-type commercial, Super Mario Brothers Plumbing. And it's got some good nods to the Super Show from 89. It's actually pretty cute and funny. We're not like the others who get all the fame. When your sink is in trouble, you can call us on the double. <laughs> oh, man. No, oh, there's probably some hate towards those late 80s Nintendo properties being made into shows. Zelda, for example, and the Super Mario show. But I, I gotta say, I mean, it's, it's cute and a nice nod. So they are paying attention to the property a little bit. Uh, number five, Knock at the Cabin, sitting at 3.9 over the weekend, nearing 49 million altogether, 31.5 domestic, and almost 17 mil internationally. Number six, 80 for Brady, 3.7 million. I'm kind of surprised that it's reached over 30 plus million, almost 34 million as it stands right now. That's that's crazy. I didn't think this would make it that far as far as gross. Kind of surprised. Maybe it reaches anywhere between 36, 38 million by the time it's finished. Number seven, Titanic. 2.4 million over the weekend for the 25th anniversary. And it's already made 50 million in the re release. That is crazy. 13.3 domestic, 38.7 internationally. Don't underestimate the power of that movie. It's real events, fictional, fictional type story. Actually, there was something I caught wind of. Someone or some company put out footage of the wreckage back around that. I think it was back around '86. Read, read something about that, and it was like coincidental. They put it out to time it with with the release, with the re-release of the movie. You know, get people back to thinking about the Titanic again, think about the real-life events. At least that's how I see it. Number eight, brand-new movie, Marlowe. 1.8 million, and it's sitting at almost 3.5 million 
just about 90% of it from the United States. Is this a is this a limited release or did this get a wide release in, in theaters? Wow. Okay. Yep. This is pretty much a failure. Twenty two hundred plus theaters. That's not something to be happy about. So this kind of is a dead on arrival type film. Number nine, missing. Made about. million. Oof. So it's made about 30 million altogether so far. Not sure if this will be considered a hit by its studio or not, but the fact it made 30 million says something. And sitting at number 10, a man called Otto. 1.6 1.6 million. Alright, it's nearing 100 million altogether. 61.1 domestic and 38.4 internationally. A little, little surprise it reached 100 million. It'll, it'll reach 100 million, excuse me. That's, that's crazy. Kind of skeptical on it making it that far, but moderate success and obviously getting past its $50 million budget and just for uh, heads up this is at number 13 but just to bring it up Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey $652,000 came out day after Valentine's Day and it has made $2.8 million so far altogether Oh, man. So, I'd be curious about... Pending if there's any extended copyright. Expect to see twists to certain properties. I think that's the best way I could describe that. So, as far as Disney goes... They're putting all their eggs into these big tentpole releases. One of the more interesting things going on is moving the Marvels from its July release until then it'll be a November release. So supposedly there might be some stuff going on with with Marvel or something. I don't know. But... The way I look at it, probably competitive during the summer, and you probably can do a lot more damage in the fall than you would the summer, but there's probably something going on behind the scenes at Marvel, at Disney, to where they try to keep continuing on this freaking cinematic universe and I wonder if it's just simply falling apart at the seams if they're pushing back releases trying to time things I mean it has made billions upon billions over the last 15 years but it's got to be tiring it's got to be hugely tiring and 
Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. That's coming out in June. I had a look on several websites of its budget. And it is $294.7 million. I wish I was joking. $294.7 million. When the first movie, Raiders, came out, $20 million. From, from what I last remembered, $20 million. That's in 1980. That's a really good budget back then, especially for something with a fantasy of what happens in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was near $50 million by the time Last Crusade came out in '89. That's still a really good budget. I mean, expensive, sure, but that's really good. I remember 15 years ago, right around when Crystal Skull came out, that Paramount needed to make $500 million to be even and make any sort of profit. This at two hundred ninety four point seven million. I believe this might be the most expensive movie ever. This movie would probably need to make eight hundred to nine hundred million, and that's probably including any sort of heavy advertising, any special airings, like say the NBA Finals put in a trailer during the commercials for the Finals, or NHL Finals for that matter. This needs to make roughly that, and there's no way I think Indiana Jones gets to that number. Or even a billion. I hate to say it'll fail, but it's hard to, to guess because a lot of people went to see Crystal Skull in 08. But a lot of people were not pleased with the direction it went. Now it is going kind of a different direction per se. However, will people be as kind to it compared to Crystal Skull? I think that's what I think is going to happen. It all depends on word of mouth and how the critics feel. Because both critics and fans were not really that pleased with 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 Crystal Skull. It could be one of those things that you know it, it could have that effect like Force Awakens did in 2015. It's a movie that brings in multiple generations, two, three generations of fans to go see the film. And that's why Star Wars 7 had all that success and made, what was it, 900 million altogether? One of the biggest openings ever for any movie. Granted, the returns have declined a bit 
with subsequent releases of other movies, other new Star Wars movies, but still, there hasn't been a new indie film in, in 15 years. There hasn't been exactly anything new of indie in a long time. So, I could see the argument of this movie doing well, but at the same time, I'm a little hesitant to say this will be a hit. Even with Harrison Ford back in it, they brought back the guy that played Sala and Raiders and Crusade. I don't know what else they're going to do with it. So as far as what's coming out over the weekend, Jesus Revolution and Cocaine Bear are the wide releases. See some people trying to think that Cocaine Bear will be a huge hit. I don't think so. It might do okay, but depending on its budget and a couple other things, I have a hard time thinking it'll overtake uh, Ant-Man 3. And I think if Ant-Man 3 wants to have any sustainable success this weekend, I think it's going to need to make anywhere between 35 and 40 million. It needs to have a drop of 60% just to be considered a healthy second weekend, I think. Where it's not substantially a huge, huge drop, but not enough to where people panic. At least that's how I see it. So let's go and head to the sports realm. In the sports realm, Daytona 500. So NASCAR begins yet again in this past Sunday. Got a huge win for the Daytona 500, and that is Ricky Stenhouse Jr., who has the 47 car, just out of pure, pure curiosity. Okay, JTG Darty Racing. They work with Hendrick Motorsports, and obviously, I'm sure that means something for Rick Hendrick and company to see some of their equipment do pretty well. And Ricky Stenhouse winning the Daytona 500. That's got to be huge for them. Joe Logano, last year's cup winner. Second, Christopher Bell. Third, Chris Buescher. Surprisingly, fourth place. That's really good for him. Alex Bowman, fifth. A.J. Allmendinger, really good. Base finishing sixth. Daniel Suarez, seventh, which is really good. Ryan Blaney, eighth. Ross Chastain begins his season, ninth. And this Herps guy, tenth. Travis Pastrana, 11th. Kevin Harvick, his final Daytona at 12th. Cody Ware, 14th. Martin Truex, 15th. Corey LaJoy, 16th. Denny Hamlin, 17th. And we got a lot of did not finishes for these group of guys. From 19th through 24th, Kyle Busch, Bubba Wallace, Eric Almirola, Brad Keselowski, Austin Sindrick, and Noah Gregson. Some pretty good drivers here. Must have been that late wreck towards the end of the race, which went uh, 212 laps, longest race in Daytona. 
Uh, Ty Gibbs. Oh, but Gregson was running at the time. Sorry. Ty Gibbs, 25th. Harrison Burton, 26th. Michael McDowell, 28th. Jimmy Johnson back, 31st in the 84 car. Austin Dillon, 33rd. William Byron, 34th. Chase Briscoe, 35th. And 37th through 40th, Eric Jones, Chase Elliott, Tyler Reddick, and Ty Dillon. So obviously, a lot happened. A lot. And for Stenhouse, hey, it punches his dick into the playoffs in the first race. So he's got to be pretty happy. Though anything can happen. Anything can can happen over the course of the next five months. So we've got to keep an eye on what happens. And we'll have to see what happens. <laughs> uh, so let's look at the Hall of Fame for the NFL. Because we've got a pretty interesting group of guys. Rondé Barber, Chuck Howley, Joe Klecko, Darrell Rivas, Joe Thomas... Zach Thomas, DeMarcus Ware, along with Ken Riley and Don Coriel. Hall of Fame. So let's take a look at some of these guys. I'm going to start off with Joe Thomas because he is probably one of the best examples of a left tackle that was that good. But here's the thing. 11 years in Cleveland. All but one were were losing efforts. Including those last two years of 2016 and 2017. Where it's just, what, one win in those two years? So I'm going to try to look as much as I can to try to remember to the best of my abilities of these guys. But in the case of all this, Rondé Barber, 16 plus years in the league, part of that really dangerous Tampa Bay defense that was so good in the late 90s and early 2000s. You think about it, guys like him, Derek Brooks, Warren Sapp, and a few others, John Lynch, they they were so good. They were so good, and that's why he started to pick up on his own. And one of the better-known corners in, in the NFL... I think it was just a matter of when he would get his opportunity to to be in the hall. I mean, he played long enough. You look at some of these other players, it's hard to gauge whether they'll get in or not. So there are some other guys that, you know, you just wonder, will they ever get their opportunity? And just thinking that with, with Don Coriel. Don Coriel is not someone that you think of in terms of 
he had all these winning seasons, but in the end, he did provide some good stuff for the NFL. Coriel, that's why Dan Fouts is probably in the Hall of Fame. That's why Dan Marino was considered one of the best one of the best quarterbacks of the 80s and 90s. His ability to throw the ball, what he was doing in his second year in 84. Really good. So just taking a quick look at uh, Rondé Barber for a second. Led interceptions in 01, 10 interceptions, career 47 interceptions, over 1,000 tackles, 28 sacks. I'm not sure what the record is for a corner, but that is pretty good. You know what? Let me just take that back. That's not good. That's excellent. I think it's 5.5 and, and 2,000. Holy moly, that is that is really good. Five-time Pro Bowler and a three-time All-Pro. No, that is that that that's really good. It's not just beyond the tackling and the interceptions. It's what you do on just about every play. And obviously, you look at some of these guys and. Just looking at some of these other stats as as a whole. I mean, Chuck Howley, 58 through 73, played linebacker. Obviously a big part of some of those those Dallas teams. Unbelievable. Joe Klecko, 78 sacks. Dangerous guy, especially when, when you think about it when he was with the Jets. Sack exchange. You don't you don't get there without someone like him and Gassino. Four time uh Pro Bowler, two time all pro, twenty and a half sacks in eighty one. Oh, he played one year in Indianapolis. That I did not know that. It's always interesting seeing some of these guys that you don't think played with someone else. Just thinking that jet-wise, I mean, what was it Joe Namath played for? San Diego at one point? Or was it Baltimore? Honestly, forget. Let's see. Rivas, I mean, at one point, Darrell Rivas was one of the best corners in all of football. One of the best. Like, I knew he played for a good amount of time, but I don't know. 11 years? That's kind of a... I gotta look at his stats. That Unless he had these really good interception type years. 29? Is that for real? That can't be real. Let me look. 29 interceptions in 11 years. 
He did win a Super Bowl with New England. Six-time Pro Bowler. Uh, four-time All-Pro. I don't know. I mean, he was definitely really good. I don't know. that. You couldn't get someone like Torrey Holt in there or something? Holt did a lot more damage in his time than Revis ever did. Did he ever win, like, MVP or something? Seven-time Pro Bowler... My apologies on that. In all 2010s team, man, he didn't even play much in 2012. He got hurt that year, I believe. And 2017, only played five games. There's got to have been better guys than him. There has to have been better guys than him. You know what? I want to look at Chuck Howley's stats just for a brief moment. It probably won't find much, but probably considering the era he was a part of. I mean, six-time Pro Bowler, played for Chicago, played for Dallas. 25 interceptions, which that's that's pretty good for, for the time he was in. A lot of fumble recoveries, one of which was for a touchdown. I'm assuming he won a Super Bowl. Yeah, Super Bowl, he was the MVP. A Super Bowl five, seven overall pick. I mean, these guys are all high draft picks. I just want to take a brief look again at Joe Thomas's stats, just for a brief moment. Wisconsin guy, yeah, ten-time Pro Bowler. That it's kind of like that same thing with Anthony Munoz or Munoz in Cincinnati. Didn't play the greatest amount of years, but he was considered one of the greatest offensive linemen ever. Then we jump to Ken Riley, one of the other older older guys in the NFL. Passed away in June of 2020. One-time All-Pro... 65 interceptions was a big part of how is that how is some of this not considered Pro Bowl worthy the guy played game in and game out how is this not considered a Hall of Fame career 65 interceptions played on a Super Bowl team was one of the cornerstones of Cincinnati's defense, even if they weren't always that good back then. I just don't get it. How does he not get in after all those years? And kind of a shame that he isn't there to be in Canton due to passing away a couple of years ago. I, I just... That really upsets me. That... That, that really upsets me. Especially when you see some of these players, you know. Zach Thomas. I believe he was a 96 draft pick. Yep, 96. One of Jimmy Johnson's first 
first year picks, fifth rounder. That that's really good. Played 13 years in the league, all but one in Miami. The last year being in Dallas. Hard nosed tackler, 1,700 tackles for his career, 20 and a half sacks, 17 interceptions. Not giving up. Especially with how bad some of those dolphin years were. Maybe just the longevity. 13 years may not always be enough, if I had to guess. But still, him and Taylor, Jason Taylor, you know, one of the best duos on the defense for Miami back then. And the last one, uh, Demarcus. Where, Kind of had him confused with Demarcus Lawrence a little bit because they both share the same first name and both played for Dallas for that long. But Ware? Absolutely worthy. Super Bowl winner, all-2000s team, nine-time Pro Bowler, four-time All-Pro, first round in 05. 12 years. He was that good. 138 and a half sacks, 600 plus tackles, a lot of losses, a lot of yard losses. 27 in 08, 21 in 2010, 26, 2011, over 200 plus quarterback hits. When Dallas was good defensively, this was the guy you had to fear the most. Truly. Truly a dangerous guy. Truly dangerous. When I think about TV a little bit, now the Super Bowl had over 113 million viewers tuning in to see that game of Philadelphia and Kansas City. Now, if you're Fox, I'd be a little weary about what's going on behind the scenes. Tom Brady says he's retired, but is he, is he going to stay retired? Because after he said he retires, he'd be going into the broadcast booth, and stories are putting up that he won't be joining Fox until 2024. And that means Greg Olson is probably out as the number one guy following this upcoming season at Fox. It probably will be number two or number three somewhere else on the network. Someone tells me we're going to see a feud. And maybe there might be some personal stuff behind the scenes or something. I don't know. It's always interesting to see some drama on the networks that some people... This is the same networks that some people are on. Thinking that just a tiny bit. The whole Skip Bayless thing and Troy Aikman. Bayless long ago was a writer in Dallas. Sometime in the 90s... From what I understand, he wrote a story about supposedly Aikman being gay. <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> Such a you know attention seeker, and obviously with the NBA trying to go after Charles Barkley, I'm talking about how he's pleased that. He's that Barkley's never been canceled, despite being told that by Chuck that 
his life was going to be ended by him and all. Maybe the reason why why Barkley probably says that is because tons of people hate Skip Bayless and what he does for attention. He's obviously trying to poke the bear at Barkley and try to get him to say something that Barkley could wind up regretting. But I think you can interpret it in other ways of why Chuck says this. And the way I look at it, it could be a way of saying he wants to end Bayless's career as a whole. I'm sure when Bayless retires or passes away, I don't think many tears would be shed because he was just an unlikable person who always had this phony personality and tried to ham it up for television and got stuck in that persona since then. And one of the other smaller notes is the passing, thinking that with baseball, tomorrow spring training. The first games are coming up. St. Louis probably will be mourning one of their guys for that's been there for a long time. Tim McCarver passed away last week at the age of 81. Played many years with the Phillies and the Cardinals, winning a couple World Series and was an all-star a couple of years. Did a lot of damage in the mid to late 60s. 1,500 hits for his career. 97 home runs. 271 career average. It's not anything too great. But 422 strikeouts. I was actually kind of surprised at how low of a strikeout he had for his career. I mean, 20 plus years. I mean, that's, that's Don Mattingly, Tony Gwynn type stuff. Its ability to have a good eye on the ball, if I had to assume. And obviously, his broadcasting career, working with ABC, working with CBS and Fox, the feud with Deion Sanders. Sometimes his broadcasting wasn't really all that great on the primetime stage. He did do locally for both New York teams, the Mets and the Yankees, Cardinals, home of the Cardinals, you know, for a long time. You know, just not the greatest of broadcasters, but there's always worse. Speaking of television, when you watch something in the morning or at least early afternoon on one of your primetime channels, and more than likely, it'll probably be Fox or maybe CBS or or ABC a tiny bit. You're going to find yourself seeing court shows. One of the most prominent long ago was Judge Judy. Now, that obviously spawned some other stuff, such as... Judge Mathis. Judge Greg Mathis. This show has been on since 1999. And 
Warner Brothers is pulling the plug on that show, and they're also pulling the plug on the People's Court with how do you say Marilyn Milan? Milan? Judge Milan? I think that's how you say her name. Both shows getting the the plug pulled. People's Court was actually on at one point early on. Yeah, it was like early 80s up until the 90s. And obviously, Milan been there since 01. I want to see how long. the 12 years in its original run. Overall, 38 overall seasons. I just want to see when the original... Early 81 through 93, and then since 97. Okay, this was on a little longer than I thought. My impression was always with... With Marilyn on there, that... The show had been on there. It started with her. Only behind Divorce Court. Been on for so long. 57 through 62. 67 through 69. 84 through 93. And then 99 through present. That's unbelievable. The way I look at this, it's sort of... Maybe the appeal of court shows just isn't there like it was back in the 90s and early 2000s. Maybe they're getting too pricier for the people that they have on there. I don't know. Times are changing. Times are changing greatly. Especially with how fractured ratings are now these days. I mean, look at the Price is Right. Price is Right has been on to the, since the 70s. And it's been on the same time slot probably longer than I was even born. 11 a.m. in the morning. Hour long, whether it's Bob Barker, whether it's Drew Carey, 11 a.m., Price is Right. They're trying with the nighttime prices right. I'm not sure how well that's doing, but nice to have a game show on there and not some Dick Wolf FBI show or NCIS or CSI or whatever. Though, there probably could be some better TV shows on in place of nighttime prices right. Although this going back to uh, Judge Mathis, looking at this through Variety.com, he is returning. Surprisingly, Allen Media Group scooped up the services of Judge Greg Mathis to host a first-run one-hour strip for Fall 2023. Mathis Court, given firm go, which is now pitching the show for broadcast cable and distribution platforms. Eight court series. A lot of court shows from these guys. What else is there? America's Court with Judge Ross, Justice for All, Christina Perez, 
Judge Mabline, Supreme Justice, Judge Karen, The Verdict, We the People of Judge Lauren Lake. Okay, I know who Lake is. She has she had one of those parental court shows. And Equal Justice with Judge Ebony K. Williams. Equal Justice premiering in the fall. So I mean maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's something people still want to watch. Maybe just not to the level of what we seen years ago. And this is coming off the heels, just thinking that, with some of these court shows being canned. Dr. Phil going off the air, I think, this year or next year. I forget, but... Dr. Phil, not exactly someone that people like. Some wonder if he even is a real doctor or not. Some wonder if his stuff actually helps. Hard to tell. Although he, him and his son did create a show, Bull, and that was on for what, five years, six years? Although, as controversial as Dr. Phil is, he ain't to the level of someone like Don Lemon, for example, for a misogynistic view on, I believe it's Nikki Haley. Something about age or something. It, I caught a I caught a glimpse and all that, and you know the deal. This guy, he's, people are not impressed with the apology that that he said in regards to this Nikki Haley and CNN forcing him to undergo formal training. (laughs) Yeah, does CNN have a Don Lemon problem? That's like saying, does ESPN have a Stephen A. Smith problem? Controversial statements about women. I know, I believe he's gay, right? So does he have like a bad view on women in general? So, I didn't feel the need to address it on the air. Maybe he... Talking about 51-year-old GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley. Saying she's not in her prime. A woman is considered in her prime when she is in her 20s, 30s, and maybe her 40s. Yeah. No, 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 no. There are women that are good in their 50s and their 60s. Depends on the quality of work and what they're doing. But, no, no. There are women that are just as good in their 50s and 60s. How can you even say that? 51 years old is not bad. What, does he think there's something wrong with women's brains by the time they reach their 50s? Does he view them as, like, dumb supermodels? Not everyone's a dumb supermodel. There's plenty of successful women. And there's more stuff beyond modeling and some other sexist stuff that 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 women have done well in. <laughs> Man, th- is this going to be like one of those episodes of Family Guy where 
it's like that episode very early in Family Guy's run. Peter becomes very feminine and acts like a woman until Lois gets in a fight with the person that changed Peter and he gets back to being his normal ways. Although not as... Though not as sexist. Though continuity be damned. (laughs) Oh, man. I think there'll probably be a couple more things they'll keep defending Lemon, CNN, and, you know... There's probably going to be something much worse, he'll say, and CNN will at some point, I think, pull the plug on him if the training don't help. (laughs) I'm not sure if the training will help at all. And lastly, uh, for TV, I was thinking about... So, one of the biggest things, obviously, is United Kingdom. The Royal Palace. People like Harry and Meghan. Now, if you want my thought on lazy writing, I look at Trey Parker, the creator of South Park. Him and his friend, Matt Stone. They've had this big show for 25 plus years. They've done some of their own things. They've had success on Broadway, some success in the movies. But South Park, they're still working on. And supposedly, the former prince and princess are not pleased with how they're depicted on the Comedy Central show. Now, it's definitely ripe with with making fun of, obviously because they keep they keep finding themselves in the spotlight and sometimes they just open their mouths and they they make things worse for themselves and it leaves them as a perfect target to be made fun of. When it comes to South Park, I don't think Trey Parker's a good writer and I feel like it reflects in some of their episodes throughout the years. When it gets bad, it gets really bad. And just their quality of episodes has never been consistent for me. When they're on a roll, such as, say, the World of Warcraft type episode, that that was a really good episode. However, when they do over-rely on their pop culture type stuff, it's, it's sometimes not that good. Supposedly, I don't see them suing South Park. I mean, there's reasons to get upset, but why would those two sue? They're known for making fun of people. Wednesday Basic. So this aired, what, last week, I think? Claimed to stay out of spotlight for the episode. Yeah. I think I remember re- reading something or thinking I think it was something because my father's not a South Park guy but he liked the Starvin' Marvin episode with Sally Struthers I think there was something about her not being pleased with how she was depicted and that was back in 97 
I mean, it, I mean, they're 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 looking for attention. I think Harry and, and Meghan. I think they're looking for attention all the time, and you know, they keep popping up in the media. So while I think it is lazy writing by Parker, it was going to be made fun of sooner or later. The way they've acted over the years and all that other stuff. Bound to happen. Bound to happen. And lastly, talk a tiny bit with two things. Going back to Hogwarts Legacy again. Still doing really well. Uh, But this is something that I'm not too surprised about, but Games Done Quick, which is a charity event that's been going on since 2010. They are banning all Harry Potter games, including Hogwarts Legacy for the foreseeable future. And they had a list of games that I saw on there that are not allowed. Obviously, adults-only games. God of War 05, I'm assuming, for like a sex mini game. And obviously, with them being on Twitch, would would very much violate the guidelines of the terms of service on Twitch. A few other things. One of the other notable ones is Five Nights at Freddy's. And I think this has to do with what happened a couple of years ago with the founder of that game selling the rights to another company after people going after him, harassing and abusing him over political views. I think some people will look at the Hogwarts thing and the Harry Potter stuff as a political thing. Considering uh, this this past fall, the Games Done Quick people decided not to do their event at a hotel in Florida over some political laws and coming back to bite them because when you rent out a hotel for a week and you opt out you're going to be paying probably a ton of fees for for the people that were supposed to work that week, the cooks the staff, the bellhops everybody and with no guests they got to find some way to get their money back and so obviously I, I think that event will hurt It's going to bite Game Stunt quick for the rest of the year. But in the case of this Hogwarts thing, I look at it as holding themselves from playing the game until the controversy dies. I think that's the best way I could describe it. It's making sure that they don't get harassed themselves due to being very corporate and probably being bounded by strict stuff from the charities and what they do themselves with how corporate they are avoid any sort of controversy although Games Done Quick has had a lot of controversies over the last 6-7 years of various things and it hasn't exactly been too kind for the for the group as a whole. At least that's what I see. I don't think Games Done Quick is doing this on purpose. I think they're just 
avoiding any Harry Potter stuff. They don't want people to be hated over things, and they don't want abusive comments or people trying to hack into them or other things. And lastly, uh, Madden 24 going to be a make-or-break game for EA Tiburon. So this company's been around since the 90s, and I think their first Madden was back in 95 with the 96 edition for the Super NES, Genesis, and a couple other platforms. But they've been making Madden for a very, very long time. Recently, there's been some hoopla over the over franchise mode and deleted saves. And yeah, I'd be pretty upset too. And that's why EA's been putting out some discounts for Madden 23. Even like prior to the Super Bowl, I've seen the PS4 version for $30. Which I'm thinking, probably a discount for Super Bowl. But now I think about it, I'd be a little upset myself. There's been a lot of hate towards Madden over the last handful of years and obviously with no competition around it, it I can see where people can say yeah EA's gotten lazier it just they're just not improving they're not revolutionizing things if Tiburon wants to survive they need to look at all the bugs fix them to the best of their ability and try to give stuff that the fans want and what the NFL wants if not, I could see EA rehauling everything, overhauling every aspect of the game to a different developer and see how they fare. It's nice to have the same developer every year, but the yearly updates, it's hard to justify sometimes to figure out what can improve, what needs to be put in, what needs to not be put in. I think you're seeing that with the NBA 2K games and people not being as pleased with them compared to previous years. Haven't been the biggest Madden fan myself in the last 20 plus years. Played quite a bit on PS2 and the Genesis days of some of the few Maddens, but otherwise, never been the hugest Madden fan per se. Make or break, if they can't, then I think you're going to see some major changes so that about wrap up this episode. This podcast, as I said before, is on Anchor.fm. You can also find us on Spotify, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. So head on down to those places, search for Geeks and Jocks. Plenty of content awaits. So with that, that's episode 143. This is Ryan Sullivan. Hope to hear your listeners on the next podcast. Stay safe, stay protected, take care of yourself, take care everyone. <laughs>